Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Daniel Green. He's the co-head of Gunderson Detmer's Latin America Practice Group, an international elite law firm focused on startups and venture capital. Dan's focus is Latin America and Europe, where he represents companies as well as U.S. and international investors pursuing business opportunities in those regions. His practice encompasses all areas of corporate and securities law, including company formation and financing, public offerings, debt transactions, corporate governance, and investor-side financings. Recent transactions handled by then include Uber's corner shop acquisition, recent financings by Clip, Confio, Credit Justo, and Valar's venture investments in TransferWise, N26, and many, many more. Dan holds a JD from Harvard Law School and a bachelor from Stanford University. Now please join me in a very valuable and informative conversation with Dan Green. Well, Daniel, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We are thrilled to have you here, and we're very excited to learn about your story and your professional work. Can we start by hearing a little bit about your background? Of course. So I am a corporate lawyer at Gunderson Detmer, which is a law firm in Silicon Valley that focuses on VC and tech company work practiced for 21 years, have been in Silicon Valley for about 15. And what I do daily is help companies raise capital, help companies scale, help companies exit through M&A or IPOs or other sales. And oftentimes I get to see the entire journey from infancy of a startup to the end result, You know, whether it's a liquidity event or something else. So it's super fun. I get to see the entire movie, if you will. And I've been doing a lot in Latin America specifically over the last, I would say, 12 or 13 years. About probably 60 or 70% of my practice today involves Latin America. The rest is purely US. But as we all know, those lines are blurring. And what is Latin America or what is Europe or what is Asia and what is US is blurring. I'll give you an example. I have plenty of clients that have cross-cultural teams that are based in Silicon Valley that may be selling somewhat in the U.S. and somewhat in Latin America or other markets. Of other clients that start, I had a conversation two hours ago with a client that started in Chile, they expanded to Colombia, and now they're looking to go to the U.S. So what I enjoy is that cross-border aspect and being able to help them from my roots in Silicon Valley. And that cross-border nature is only going to get more generalized as we enter an increasingly more distributed work environment, right? So tell yeah. us a little bit of why you decided to focus on Latin America. Yeah, so for me, it started with a personal side of my background. I was a, a kid who grew up in California, loved traveling, had the opportunity and fortune to travel a lot when I was younger, mostly to Latin America. And I went off to college, did an exchange program at the Catholic University of, of Santiago, Chile, my now wife of 21 years there. And so at the age of 20, when I met her, kind of opened up these ideas of, wow, I'd love to do something that when I get older connects Latin America, Chile specifically, but more broadly Latin America with you know where I'd come from, which was California. Went off to law school, really enjoyed the practice of law, knew I didn't want to be a litigator, which I always saw as people that loved fighting. I wanted to be somebody that was on the business side, somebody that was actually helping build and construct. And so kind of naturally fit within the Silicon Valley practice of tech and VC law. And when I came back in 2004, five. I looked around and I was like, gosh, I would love to do something with Latin America and Silicon Valley. And now I'm a lawyer and I'm having all this fun, but I don't see many opportunities. But I looked around and I saw lawyers doing stuff with Israel or India or China. And I just, I always thought, look, the idea of, of talent and entrepreneurship and disruption of new markets, that's global. That That's going to happen anywhere. And the idea of really smart people in Silicon Valley and lots of capital and lots of know-how 
Like that's pretty unique here. Somehow I have to find a bridge to do that. And over many years, many trips, much scar tissue, a lot of trial and error and learning, I started to develop a practice around that. And I have to say, I mean, the last for a number of years, it was small, it was niche. People would look at me, traditional Silicon Valley lawyers would look at me and be like, dude, like, what are you doing spending all that time jumping on planes to Mexico City or Brazil or Chile? Like, just focus on the US work. There's so much here. And I always thought to myself, if I did that and gave it up, I would feel regret because I can see this opportunity growing into something really, really big. And so fast forward to 2020, the region overall, as we all know, and not just Latin America, but elsewhere in in the world, you know, Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, other parts are really getting into the development of new technologies. The pandemic is accelerating secular trends that we saw before COVID, such as digitalization of financial products and, you know, telemedicine, uh, teleworking, online education, all of that is being just, just really accelerated. And these trends are even more pronounced in places like Latin America. And so for me, as a, as a lawyer, being able to help guide a company on the fundraising process from an international investor and, and standpoint is super fun. It's super enriching. Um, a lot of what I do these days, there's a core element of the legal aspect, but some of it is just market practice, anticipating issues. A lot of times it's, hey, help me understand, Dan, when should I flip to the U.S.? When should I think about going into the U.S. market from a legal and non-legal perspective? Am I ready to fundraise with Silicon Valley? What are the issues around exits? How do I compensate? I'm hiring my first U.S. employee who's coming from Google or Facebook or some big company. How do I structure their equity? What percentage of their equity should I be giving them? A lot of those questions are just based on market practice and being able to help illustrate and share the knowledge is something that I enjoy. And those are definitely decisions that carry along for years to come that founders are making at the very beginning of their startups. Let's talk a little bit about the entrepreneurial scene in the region in Latin America and specifically about the fintech scene. I know that you cover multiple industries, but fintech is really one that has been very important for the region and for you. So I think you're definitely the right person to tell us about the evolution of the fintech scene over the last decade. Yeah. Fintech is one of the leading sectors of disruption, digitalization, and also U.S. and international investor appetite. In my case, it started almost 10 years ago, principally in the larger markets such as Mexico and obviously Brazil. I do most of my work in Spanish-speaking markets, so I'll comment more on those markets. But early on, you had you know, tropicalization, if you will, of U.S. business models that were brought to places like Mexico and Colombia. And there was a certain amount of investor skepticism or just a lack of understanding around those markets. That was 10 years ago. Fast forward today, and you have truly innovative, homegrown companies with homegrown business models that may borrow from more established players, but are also really creating their own unique solutions to problems that exist outside of the U.S. that may exist in Latin America or Sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera. So you have, you know, you have an explosion of ideas. You have plenty of companies that are trying to solve similar problems, such as you know, the neobanking phenomenon, such as you know, introduction of new financial products to a growing middle class. When you take a step back and you look at these markets such as Mexico or Brazil, there is a huge underbanked and underserved community of people who are financially active on a day-to-day basis, but may not be financially served from a traditional banking or other model. And so helping unlock that chain with digital disruption is super important and interesting. Um, And as I mentioned, investors, this is one of the sectors that investors in the US and investors in Europe for example, have really discovered. And like anything, once you do your first investment or your first deal in a market, you're much more likely to do your second deal and your third deal, et cetera. And so now you have a depth of capital markets and of VCs that are active in the space. You have a huge 
and growing talent pool of entrepreneurs that are building these businesses. Many of them are cross-cultural as well. So you might have a Iranian guy who grew up in Spain, who is based in Mexico City, and a co-founder who's Spanish, and they come together and attack a certain problem. You may have two Spaniards moving to Mexico City to grow a business. What I enjoy is seeing that talent and seeing the kind of different perspectives that they bring solve unique problems. Great. Well, while we have you here, Dan, I think this can be actually a very educative podcast for our listeners, particularly because we have quite a few founders who listen to the show, early stage founders, and also some aspiring founders. So I think it would be fantastic to actually get some takeaways and learn from your legal experience so our listeners can take some valuable lessons. We can start by hearing maybe some of the most important aspects that founders should consider early on when they actually decide to launch a company and then they're thinking of incorporating the legal structure. Yeah, I think you said something really important, Miguel, a few minutes ago, which is understanding that what you do today in an early stage of a company actually has long-term ramifications. So I'll give you a really good example, and we should spend a few minutes talking about this. The choice of the legal entity that you set up for your business is actually a really important question. It's not something you just do in the spur of the moment online by setting up Delaware Corp because that's what your friend from business school recommended you do. You actually have to give it a fair amount of thought. The questions such as, where am I going to fundraise? Where are my operations going to be? And if I have a crystal ball, where will I exit? Who will buy my company? Will I go public? Will I get sold to Santander or City or somebody like that? Those are all questions that will help you determine the legal structure that you should choose. So getting it right early on is really important. And then sometimes practical considerations such as how much can I spend? You know, what's my budget today? How much distraction is this going to create for me? What are the maintenance costs going to be? Those are important considerations as well. Fundamentally, it comes down to tax and corporate considerations. So you may have friends that tell you, look, Miguel, everyone that I know has a Delaware corporation. All my friends in the US have a Delaware corporation. You in Bolivia, you should set up a Delaware corporation. That's going to be the easiest way for you to fundraise in the US. 10 years ago, that was the mantra, and it was what everyone did. Today, it is not good advice. I'll tell you why. Because while the Delaware Corporation is really a good structure for a U.S. business model, and that's what 99.9% of our U.S. clients do, it actually can add two levels of tax to a company when they're selling their business. I'll give you an example. Classic fintech startup, right? Set up with a Delaware Corporation, and they have their operations in Mexico and Colombia and they have subsidiaries in Mexico and Colombia. And they you know, set up today, things go really, really well. They raise a couple of rounds of funding from VCs and others. And fast forward four years from now, they're getting sold for $500 million. Amazing. Exit, huge success story. Everyone's really happy. The buyer, in this case, just to give you an example, let's say it's Santander from Spain. And they're buying the business because they're really interested in getting more into the Mexican and Colombian markets, or they like the product opportunities, et cetera. With the Delaware Corporation, in that example, the founders and the investors in that company will pay two levels of tax if Santander says, and it will likely say this, we want to buy your assets or your subsidiaries in Mexico and Colombia. Santander may have no need to buy the Delaware Corporation because they're not a U.S. bank. And they, for their own internal planning, don't want to have a Delaware Corporation. And if they choose to buy the assets or the subsidiaries, the tax bill on that deal will be very steep. It will be very expensive. You'll pay one level of tax at the Delaware Corporation level, which will be 21% currently. It used to be 35%. Prior to the recent tax reform under President Trump, 21% today, it may go back up in the future. No one really knows. 
And then the second level of tax will be upon distributing the remaining proceeds after the 21% is paid, you'll distribute the proceeds to the shareholders because you're exiting the business. And the shareholders will pay their own level of tax depending on where they're resident. And so they may pay 20, 30 or more percent on top of the 21%, which can easily account for 40, 50 or more percent of your overall proceeds. In that case, we're talking about million worth of taxes on a $500 million exit, which is just extraordinary, right? And so in the last few years, particularly in Latin America, but also in other markets, the world has gotten a lot smarter around um, legal structuring and tax in particular. And so the Cayman model, Cayman Islands, has a very good tax and legal regime for setting up holding companies. So you don't have to have your operations in Cayman. You don't have to have a local um, director in Cayman or a local office in Cayman. And you can still take advantage of the Cayman Islands as a holding company jurisdiction. By holding company, I mean basically the legal entity that the investors and the founders and the option holders sit at. You don't have to have any operations there. You don't have to have any employees there, but it's the vehicle that raises the capital and is at the top of a legal structure. And so the Cayman Islands has emerged in the last few years as a really, really good alternative to Delaware. It's not for everyone, and there's not a one-size-fits-all approach for a number of reasons. Cayman is considered a tax haven in certain jurisdictions, and what that means is you can't take advantage of certain tax treaties, and you may be on certain blacklists for certain types of funds, for certain types of angel investors, that can be a real issue, but many other investors are very comfortable with Cayman. And the world is changing and getting much more sophisticated around this issue. There are certain VC funds who will insist that their portfolio companies be Cayman. So for example, Kazakh Ventures, which is very active in one of the top VC funds in Latin America, insists that nearly all of their portfolio companies have Cayman holding company structures for this reason. In other markets, in Asia, for example, Singapore is used as a holding company for similar reasons. And in Europe, other markets are used for that reason. I would say the following to the entrepreneurs in the audience, in this question of the holding company structure, don't get too creative. Don't listen blindly to your friend's advice. And also don't be swayed by tax considerations by itself. For example, if someone told you, you should set up in Luxembourg, you should set up in Holland because they have really good tax rules, tax efficient. That may be true. And that may be a really good structure for Microsoft, which is huge and can deal with the bureaucracy that comes with Luxembourg or Holland. But for an early stage startup, it's very expensive to use those countries. The beauty of Cayman and the beauty of Delaware is they have very low maintenance costs. They don't require substance, meaning you don't have to have the local offices. You don't have to hire an employee that's Cayman resident. But some of the European countries and other countries around the world actually do have those requirements, which is really expensive and impractical for early stage companies. So consider the tax, the corporate, and the investor familiarity and make your decision accordingly. It's really important to have you know, good advisors, legal, and other advisors as part of that decision particularly if you're going to be raising from international investors. If, on the other hand, you want to keep things simple and you set up your business in your home country and you raise initially from your home country investors, angels, maybe a small fund, and maybe you're only raising a modest amount of money, let's say less than a million dollars. In that case, and you kind of want to keep it simple and lean and don't want to spend too much on legal expenses, it's perfectly valid to say to yourself, look, we're just going to set up a legal entity in our home country, keep it super simple, and postpone or push out the decision to do the flip into the future. And sometimes our advice when we're talking to early stage companies is exactly that, because they're better served by keeping things lean in their early stages. And where I think it makes sense to do that flip or to set up the international legal structure is where you're raising from international investors, and you're raising enough money to actually justify the costs, the transaction costs of putting something together. That's interesting. And you mentioned a little bit about the VC demands 
what are some of the other standards that VCs are used to that founders should think of? Yeah, VCs are creatures of habit, like human beings in general, right? So they want to look for something that's familiar. They don't want to reinvent the wheel. That occurs with legal structures. Delaware came in. That's something they're comfortable with. And it occurs with their due diligence process generally and legally speaking, what they look at. So I'll give you an example. When you're setting up a company in the US, it's common to have vesting on founder shares or on your options that you're granting to your key members of your team. Vesting means you have to work a certain period of time or you have to meet certain milestones to actually earn the right to the equity, whether it's an option or outright shares. Founders, generally speaking, have vesting. And VCs, when they look to invest in a company, want to see that that vesting already in place. Sometimes they'll make the requirement that a founder that maybe is fully vested uh, partially revest or claw back their vesting in order to maintain a certain incentive to continue to work for the company. And that happens. But generally speaking, our advice when we're setting up companies is put in place a standard vesting package. So when the VC comes to invest, they see something that they're already used to, and you don't even have to open up the discussion about what sort of vesting terms make sense. Generally speaking, you start vesting from the day that you start your full-time service with the company. If you were part-time for a little while, maybe you were working for a bigger company, and then you go full-time, you know, sometimes you get a little bit of credit for the part-time, but you mostly get credit from when you started full-time. Usually, from a Silicon Valley or U.S. perspective, the standard vesting term is four years. The idea being that over a four-year period of time, that's generally a reasonable period of time for someone to fully contribute to a company, or at least to, to show that they've earned the equity that they were entitled to. So I wouldn't get too creative on vesting schedules. I wouldn't try to go out to 10 years or do one year. For full-time employees, four years is the norm. But for advisors or for directors, board members who are more senior, shorter vesting schedules, one or two years are more common. And then there's different flavors around vesting in terms of acceleration, things like that. My advice is, again, keep it simple, keep it plain vanilla so that a VC, when they see it, knows that it's all standard. VCs want to know that the company that they're investing in has taken good advice has been properly set up and has good advisors that know this market well. And one of those signals is the vesting. Another signal and another area of critical importance is intellectual property. When we're talking about technology, fintech in particular, we're really talking about technology, right? So we're talking about, we're really talking about intellectual property because that is the backbone of technology. Intellectual property is a vast umbrella term that can mean many different things. It can mean patents, it can mean copyrights, it can mean trademarks, or it can mean know-how. And by know-how, that's really just stuff that's in your head that relates to and is valuable to the company that you're working for. Customer lists, product plans, product specs, the PowerPoint slide you just did that you know architected the business plan for the company. All of that has value. All of that is proprietary or should be proprietary, and you want to protect it. There's various ways to protect the intellectual property of a company, and VCs want to make sure that those steps have been taken. A good example, and it comes up a fair amount. So US VCs and international VCs basically expect that all IP that belongs to the company should be documented and should be owned by the company. And anyone that does work for a company, whether it be for a few months whether it be for just a small project or whether it be the CTO who's full-time, signs a document that makes that very, very clear. For employees, that's called a Proprietary Information Assignment Agreement, or PIAA. Very standard fare in the U.S. market. Less standard in certain other markets, although it's becoming more standard. I had a client many years ago that had started in Spain, in Madrid, 2007 took a number of years to grow their business there. Then they came to the US market and really started to expand. And three years later, got their first term sheet from Kleiner Perkins. And so it was great. Terms looked great. Valuation was excellent. 
and they knew they were going to be propelled into a new um, state. As we were going through the due diligence process, Kleiner Perkins lawyers said to us quite reasonably, show us all of the IP documents. Show us that everyone that has worked for the company has signed a PIAA. And we went to the company and we asked them this and they said, well, we, you know, we've got 40 employees and, you know, 37 have signed and, and we'll get the other three to sign. And, but we asked, well, what about people who have come and left the company in those many years of growth? And they said, oh, well, when we started, we didn't actually have anyone sign. And that was a problem because those people that, who had come and left had actually done work for the company. And in some cases were coders, were developing the intellectual property. And in some cases, they maybe weren't coders, but they were still, they were marketing people and they were helping create this company. And this poor company had to go back to ex-employees, ex-team members, ask them to sign a piece of paper that might be totally foreign to them, or they might have left the company in less than amicable terms. And now they're being asked to sign a piece of paper where they have no obligation to do so. So it was a really, it ultimately got fixed and there's ways to fix that, but much better to preempt that issue and solve for it up front by being very disciplined that everyone who works for your company, you make sure that they sign that piece of paper. And generally speaking, it is you know, quite easy to do. Very interesting. Now you've had some also acquisitions and M&A activity that you have worked on, particularly in fintech and, and some of those very recent. So I think it'll be great to talk about those. We can maybe start by probably the most recent one, and it's the acquisition of Greensill, the UK's largest fintech and one of Europe's largest fintech, and them going into Colombia and acquiring Omni, that is a fintech in Latin America that has presence in Colombia and Chile. So I think you know this is super relevant uh, for the times that we live in. And in fact, you know, we've also had Greensill on the show, so it's a nice combination of guests. Yeah, I know you had Lex on recently, and that deal is an incredibly exciting deal because it validates the market opportunity that Greensill obviously saw with Omnibank. And it shows, it presents Colombia and Chile as really relevant for VC investors. That was an exit that, you know, financially speaking, is very interesting for a company that grew very quickly. It's not, you know, a company that's been around for decades. It's a really recent entrant into the market and show a venture type of return to their investors and to sell to a player like Greensill really validates this opportunity. M&A is really different from financings or from you know, the earlier stages of a journey. M&A is much more about presenting a value proposition that makes sense, but from a legal perspective and what I get involved with, addressing areas of legal risk that are much more heightened. So in an early stage deal, let's, let's take your company that's raising a series C or safe or series A round. Investors are willing to take risks because they're usually buying, they're valuing the company at you know, a much lower price and their model assumes a certain amount of failure, a certain amount of risk, right? Traditional VC models model out quite a bit of failure in their portfolio offset by a lot of upside and a few home runs. And so they're willing to overlook certain things or just take the risk. In an M&A context, where you have a large buyer like Greensill or uh, Santander or Cisco or someone like that, when they have teams of lawyers, they are much less willing to take the risk because there's no incentive for a lawyer within Santander to say, oh, forget it. We're going to assume the risk. They'll get fired with their jobs, right? Or they'll, they will have to report to their boss and they may be taken to task for that. So they're much more acclimated to going down to a really exhaustive level of due diligence, not just legal, financial, HR, marketing, customer, et cetera. Every area of due diligence is heightened. That's why M&A is complex for the most part. It's expensive. It takes generally quite a bit of time. And as a startup founder, 
you want to have presented your company along its journey in a way that you're building that house so that when you get to the M&A process and you're subjected to the stress test of that, you are prepared. Yeah, it's going to still be painful or it's still going to be expensive or lengthy, but you're prepared. You don't have surprises. You don't have IP issues come up or cap table issues come up. You have a lot of integrity in your company and you're presenting yourself as a polished product to the buyer. You're selling yourself to the buyer, of course, right? In so many different ways, literally and figuratively. And one of the ways you're selling yourself is by presenting a really solid legal framework for your company. Properly protected your IP, your cap table, the ownership of your company is exactly what it says it is. And you're not going to have somebody come out of the woodwork and say, hey, I was promised 1% of the company, the classic Facebook type of situation, or employees who left the company and were disgruntled, who have an axe to grind, who then get wind of this deal and come up with some crazy claim about what they were entitled to. You would be not surprised, but those sorts of issues come up in an M&A context. And M&A contexts are invariably fraught with a lot of time pressure, a lot of momentum and emotion, because generally speaking, time can kill the deal. The longer the time that it takes to do a deal, the more risk there is in the deal, either because it leaks, either because the market changes, a pandemic occurs, something else crazy happens, right? So you want to make sure that deals are moving briskly in an M&A context. Greensill and Omni did that. And it was credit to the founders of Omni and to Lex and his team for really dealing with a lot of complexity in a relatively short amount of time. You and I were talking earlier, it, this deal was interesting from a legal perspective because its legal structure that Omni had, what's called a freeze structure. And it was a novel structure that was set up a few years ago. We were talking about the Delaware and Cayman distinction earlier. And so many companies are out there and they have Delaware corporations because of legacy reasons, because maybe they came through Y Combinator before Y Combinator changed its rules. YC used to insist that all of their portfolio companies be Delaware corporations. They have since changed that rule in the last year, but there's plenty of companies out there that have Delaware corporations as a result. And it's not easy to flip from Delaware to something else. And because it's not easy to do that flip, you have to kind of get creative and try to solve for certain circumstances. The free structure that Omni had was a solution to that problem. And so they had a Cayman holding company, but they also had a Delaware corporation. We had to stress test it with PwC that was representing Greensill and Greensill's lawyers and their team. And we ultimately obviously came out stronger for that. And they looked at it, they analyzed it, they got comfortable with it, but it was still a novel situation. And so that deal for a number of reasons is really, really cool. And I think a sign of future things to come. Right? We talked about fintech having grown so much, and there's bigger financing rounds that are in play. There's new entrants to the market, still very little M&A right? compared to more established markets. And so anytime you do an M&A deal like that, it's validation of what everyone has been building for. Absolutely. You also were involved in another recent acquisition, and that was Uber going into Latin America and acquiring Corner Shop. Maybe you can tell us uh, also some interesting insights and learnings from, from that deal. Yeah, obviously that's not a fintech deal, but it's a super interesting deal for so many reasons. It'll be a deal that will be studied for many years to come. Literally that deal in all of its variations, including Uber and Walmart and Walmex, which tried to buy Corner Shop several years ago, from start to finish has lasted three plus years. The CEO, the founders were exhausted at the end of the process. It's obviously worked out very, very well for them, but they have a lot of scar tissue. One of the main learnings from that deal is you want to build in flexibility into your company, into your legal structure. So we were talking about the Cayman Hold Co. Corner Shop had a Cayman Holding Company, which was great. They also had something additional, which we recommend when we set up companies, and that is an LLC, a Delaware Limited Liability Company. 
which serves as an intermediate or sandwich between the Cayman holding company and the local subsidiaries. Between that, you have a Delaware LLC, which is the intermediate holding company, which is also tax neutral or tax transparent. And it's set up there for a couple of reasons. But one of the main reasons came out of Corner Shop, which is Corner Shop, when they went through their first M&A process, they had antitrust review. So every country has antitrust rules, which usually come into play when you're selling your company or when you're raising a big financing round. The US has the FTC and, and DOJ that do that, and each country has its own regulator. In Mexico, they have COFESE. And Corner Shop was the first e-commerce deal that COFESE had ever reviewed. And COFESE has certain rules, and their rules are very expansive as to the amount of information that both parties, the seller and the buyer, have to provide. And in the case of Corner Shop, they asked for the financial statements and the governance documents, the internal shareholder documents of major investors, and they look one level up. So for the Cayman holding company to sell, Cofese needed that information from the 5% or greater holders of the corner of the Cayman holding company, which in this case included a handful of USVCs such as Excel and Jackson Square Ventures, both really good VCs, both very against sharing that information. They don't share their financial statements or their governance documents with anyone except for their LPs. And they don't share it to the U.S. regulators, and they certainly wouldn't want to be comfortable sharing it to a non-U.S. regulator. So that issue became a, almost a deal killer. They were like, look, we're just not going to be able to do this. Fortunately, we had the LLC, which allowed us to sell the LLC shares. So Cayman sold the LLC shares to the buyer, was going to. And in that case, Cofese only looks one level up. And so we were able to provide the information regarding the Cayman entity but we didn't have to go to the level of the shareholders of the Cayman entity. That was very, very helpful. Ultimately, the deal, the first deal, um, Corner Shop Walmart, fell because of antitrust issues in Mexico, not for this reason that we were talking about, but for a perceived competition that they saw or aggregation of competition with Walmart and Uber. They're educating themselves. Uh, Cofese has been doing a lot of outreach. I participated last year in an event with Cofese, and they're trying to educate themselves more about technology and e-commerce and, and other areas, fintech included. And so it's now bearing fruit with other transactions. We closed the first part of the sale to Uber. So Uber is buying 51% of Corner Shop, and we did get antitrust approval in Chile. We are still waiting for the antitrust approval from Mexico, which will hopefully, knock on wood, come in the next you know, month or two. But that deal has moved forward. I think for the entrepreneurs in the audience and the investors as well, you have to build in a certain amount of unpredictability in the antitrust process, particularly as in markets such as Latin America or Southeast Asia, where there isn't a lot of M&A deals in these tech markets and in fintech. The regulator is going to be more cautious and they're going to look to their US or European colleagues and say, well, what, how are they analyzing these deals? In some cases that may be relevant, but in some cases it may not be. And so all of us play a role in helping educate the regulators to, do, to be a, a smart regulator and understand how quickly technology markets change how competitive it is, and what looks like an incumbent today, what looks like the 800-pound gorilla, may actually be subjected within a few months to a lot of competition. Very interesting. That's the story that you don't read on the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for sharing that, Dan. You obviously you know, have continued to serve your clients during the pandemic, the crisis that we're navigating. But tell us a little bit of how this has impacted your work, but more importantly, your clients. And you know, if you have any predictions for how the Latin American landscape will look like later this year and you know, coming out of this pandemic. Yeah, so it's evolving, right? I mean, it all hit us very quickly. I was in Mexico City in February. Things were just normal. You know, it was like, okay, great. We're planning all these cool things and deals the coming months. And then suddenly we get punched in the face in the middle of March. And the first reaction is, what just hit us? 
what is happening? Let's look to China. Let's look to other markets. We had a number of deals in the pipeline when the pandemic broke and people started to shut down their offices. And the initial concern was, are those deals going to close? And are those deals going to close on the, at the valuation and the terms that people had agreed to at the term sheet stage? Fortunately, with one or two exceptions, the deals that we had in the pipeline did close and they closed on the same valuation and terms. I had one deal, FinTech in Colombia, that had to suffer two valuation decreases during the pandemic. As a result of the pandemic, their business was was affected substantially. The deal still happened and the company has responded and has, has recovered and is looking quite promising now. But they certainly suffered a month or two and it was worrisome. Since then, particularly I would say since late May, early June, the market is looking increasingly promising. I sit here today thinking about the second half of the year, thinking about my client base, thinking about Latin America, thinking about fintech. And I'm as optimistic as I was in January because the pandemic is driving so much growth and speed that we thought would happen maybe over several years, but it's now happening in a compressed window. There are certainly winners and losers, and no doubt certain sectors apart from fintech are really getting hit, obviously travel and hospitality, for example. But within fintech, companies are reacting to the increased risk, and they're using technology to better analyze risk and using algorithms to tighten up lending requirements or accelerate applications or better service existing clients. What I love about technology, and we were all blessed to work with technology to be in the tech, tech industry, is you know, tech is used to disruption. Tech is used to change. It's not static. And so when something like a pandemic happens, yeah, there's an initial period of what just happened, what just hit us, but the reaction time is much faster. And so the VCs, particularly the sophisticated VCs in this world, really hit their companies hard by saying, we need just to pull back. We need you to pull back on marketing and spending and, and hiring, et cetera. And there were a round of layoffs of a number of clients of ours in the fintech space, but they moved quickly. They did that within a month or two. And I was having a conversation with a prominent Mexican fintech earlier this week. They had laid off significant percentage of their workforce in April or May. And I was talking to them and they were like, look, you know, we have recovered we're looking at strategic hiring now. We're planning for our next fundraising at the end of this year, maybe early next year. So they are already thinking about what are the next steps. And that's consistent with a number of clients that I have in this industry. There are, I would say there's three different categories of companies that I'm working with right now. There's the ones whose numbers are just rocketing because of the pandemic. Corner shopping an example, because everyone's in their home, everyone's ordering groceries online. Their numbers are off the charts. I have a few other clients that are just, you know, on that same path. There are, then there's the second category that I was mentioning a moment ago. They got hit initially pretty hard. They're recovering. They're using technology to better analyze risk or to better analyze their clientele. And they're already, you can see, have already turned the corner and are, and are projecting modest or significant growth for the rest of the year. And then there's the other category, you know, the sectors that are hit really, really hard, where they are either in survival mode or, um, you know, retrenching and pivoting and, and trying to move forward. A lot depends on where you were caught in that specific moment in time, you know, mid-March when the world changed. And if you were fortunate to have raised a big capital round last year, and there's a number of fintechs in that category and other companies, you are sitting in a pretty well-positioned place because you have capital to do buy-side acquisitions. That's the other phenomenon that we're starting to see is a little bit of consolidation in the market, something that happens in established markets all the time, but within the startup and innovation space is less common. But you're now seeing that. You're seeing a well-capitalized incumbent company, maybe they raised a hundred or two hundred million last year, and they're seeing opportunities targets that bring talent, bring new product development pipelines, 
that maybe were quite expensive from a valuation standpoint six months ago, they now look a lot more attractive. So we're seeing a lot of activity in that space. Yeah, if there's ever a, a region that is used to shocks is Latin America. And a lot of these companies were built for resistance. It's what uh, Alex Lazaro argues are the camels, right? Companies yeah. that can sustain drought, long periods of droughts and shocks. Sure. So curious to hear your perspective of successful founders. So you, you work with a number of very successful entrepreneurs. I'm sure the audience will love to hear if there are any common traits that you've, you see amongst them. Are there any commonalities among successful founders and their teams? Yeah, there are. It's funny. The longer you do this, what I do, the, the more commonality you see in successful founders. A lot of it is communication and execution and a certain passion and charisma. So communication, right, is how do you naturally find the right amount of information to communicate with your team? Are you responsive? Do you know when to dive into something in detail and when to delegate and when to just you know, pull back? That's a fundamental commonality of successful entrepreneurs. Not that every entrepreneur that I work with is in the weeds, but, but they know when to parachute in and then when to pull back or when to delegate. Sometimes with other founders, you know, they'll either just get too spread thinly and you won't get their attention or they'll get lost in the weeds. But the successful founder knows how to calibrate communication. They're really, really good at execution. So best founders, they're sponges. They take the information you give them. They take other information from other parties, other advisors, the research they're doing, every conversation they're having. They internalize it, then they execute, and they come back to you with showing demonstrable progress and other questions. And that's not just raw intellect. You know, I've, I work with a lot of smart people, and sometimes you're like, wow, that person's brilliant. They're asking great questions. But you'll talk to them three or six months later, and they won't have shown the progress that you would have expected. Others are like super quiet, listening, taking it all in. And you talk to them in three to six months and you're like, wow, they just, they went out and executed super well. And some are really, really good at that. Then there's a certain charisma, a certain passion, a certain single-mindedness to their, what they want to do. They know where they're headed. They're dogged about it. They're really determined about it. And you can just see they're a force of nature. I have one client in Mexico that is like that. You know, he's Venezuelan. He's dealt with a lot in his life, and you can tell that guy is going to build something special regardless of what headwinds he's facing. And good founders surround themselves by talent. This is a cliche. You hear it a lot, but I subscribe to this theory. You want to surround yourself by smarter people than yourself. Sure, we all have egos, but you don't want to have so much of an ego where you've got to be the smartest person in the world. You've got to be the one that's always right. You want to be able to hire people that are ambitious, that are really good at execution and know more than you do in a certain area. Give that person the autonomy to run with that and self-realize, self-develop themselves. And I think good founders do that. And then good founders are able to admit weakness. I think it goes a little bit alongside with the last point, which is surrounding themselves by smarter people. Like they know they're good listeners and they know some of their weaknesses, some of the areas that maybe they're not as strong in. And they surround themselves not just by smart people, but by advisors as well that they can draw upon. The world is more networked than ever in spite of the pandemic when it's harder to network. What I'm seeing today is a vast network of know-how, of capital, of startups that didn't really exist 10 or 15 years ago. And there's so many different building blocks of those networks, but the networks allow us to get you know, better talent hired and to get to the right VCs or to get to the right VP of engineering that you want to hire. So my advice is always, you know, utilize your network as much as you can. Dan, fascinating insights. Before we go, 
we always like to find out a little bit about the personal side of our guests. So I was wondering if you could share some of your hobbies, some of the things you do outside of work. Yeah. So I have two kids who keep me super busy right now. Love sports. I'm a sports junkie. The hardest thing about the pandemic has been the shutdown of sports for the most part. Now soccer in the US, Major League Soccer has started again. Baseball is actually starting today, but it was tough for a little while. I love playing sports with my kids. As a kid, I grew up playing a lot of golf. And so I grew up in Southern California and I was two years older than Tiger Woods. And we played in a number of tournaments together. He would crush me when I was 12 and he was 10. But I went off to Stanford and I played on the golf team my freshman year there. And I remember the coach telling me, there's this kid, Tiger Woods, who was in high school at the time. He was a junior in high school, but he had written a letter to the coach and said, I want to come to Stanford. It's my dream. And the coach was telling me this. And I was like, yeah, you've got to keep your eye on that kid. He's very, very special. And so he eventually came and I had an accounting class with Tiger uh, when I was a junior and Tiger was a freshman. And it was one of these classes which people took as a requirement. Interesting class, but not super challenging. But I remember taking the midterm exam, middle of the, the semester, looking over, Tiger wasn't there, and then realized he was at the Masters, playing in his very first Masters tournament, one of the majors, and he ended up winning that tournament. So it was just really cool to be surrounded by somebody that you knew was special. I will say that Tiger was pushed so hard as a kid. One of the challenges as a parent is not over pushing, but I remember seeing Tiger when he was 10 or 12 and his dad was out there and his dad was an ex-military person and his dad would be pushing him so hard. Yeah, you have to do this, son. You have to do that. And, and I remember turning to my mom and was like, boy, that poor kid is getting pushed around by his father. And thinking to myself, either he's going to be something special and unique or he's going to rebel at some point, right? So a little of both have happened in his life, but it's been cool to follow his, his journey and, and just be surrounded by, by talent. Fascinating. I, I, I really like that you, you shared that. Well, then, thank you again. This has been extremely informative and interesting, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners will be very happy. And you know, I hope uh, that we continue crossing paths. Thank you, Miguel. Great job with your, your podcast. Wish you the best and we will definitely stay in touch. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.